Well, good morning. Happy Mother's Day. I know for, for like the, the kids out there, be nice to your mom. If you're an adult, call your mom today. Call your mom today. Turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the, the churches of Galatia. But he also writes to us these words. Verse 26. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And you pray with me again briefly. Uh, Father, we ask now that you open your word up to us and open us up to your word, that we might behold the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Please bless us to that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm still getting to know uh, all of you <laughs> at this point. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. You, you will all get to know me way more than I will get to know you because of the things that I say up here. But let me tell you a little biography for me. I was born in 1967. Uh, my mom's name uh, was Barbara. My father's name was Robert. And I was born in Burns, Oregon, um, which was the big city because they lived in a little cowboy community called Diamond at, at the time. Uh, my my brother Doug uh, was born in 1969 in Ontario, Oregon. I was two. I have no recollection of that whatsoever. I have another brother named Rob who was born in 1971. He was born in Ontario also. I do remember this. I remember meeting him when he was brought home, or at least I have a memory of the pictures that I have seen. Uh, but I, I I can conjure up some memories of that. 1973, two years later, my sister Nalima was born, but I didn't meet her for quite some time. Two years after that, 1979, another sister of mine was born, Amy, but again, I did not meet her immediately. It was nine months after her birth that our family hopped in our van to drive from Vail, Oregon to Portland, Oregon, the really big city, to pick her up at the airport. We had adopted her from South Korea. Three years later, we flew to an even bigger city, New York, where we picked up my sister Nalima, who was being flown in from Calcutta, India. So I, I grew up in, in this kind of international family, and, and I was always very proud of that, very proud of that. And, and I'm especially grateful for that today. And I'm grateful for this reason, because I think that because of what my parents chose to do, that I can understand the gospel just a little bit better because of my experience being part of an adoptive family. See, my sisters, Nalima and Amy, South, or India and South Korea respectively, they, they looked very different from my brothers and me. <laughs> my sisters were oftentimes some of the only minorities in the very small towns that we lived in. But, you know, we, we never had issues, of course, for, you know, we didn't have to tell our, my sisters that they were adopted. All they had to do was look in a mirror. They, they didn't look like us at all. But despite looking very different than their brothers, they were every bit Miles' girls. They were my sisters. 
they were Miles kids. Just like my, uh, my, my brothers and I ran around courts with jerseys that said Miles on the back, sweatshirts and such, they did the same exact thing. They were as much a part of my family as the biological brothers. Now, from the outside, I suppose people could have looked and they might have discerned a difference in appearance between the biological Miles kids and the adopted Miles kids, but that distinction had no merit in our family. There was no differentiation in our family between those born into and those adopted into. Now, now why am I telling you all this? Because Paul makes the same exact argument here in Galatians 3 and Galatians 4. Now, by by way of background, to, to catch us up again, Paul had planted a series of churches in the region of Galatia, that's modern-day Turkey, someplace to the northwest of, of, of Israel, if you will. Word had come to him come to him since planting those churches, that there were some false teachers that were coming from Jerusalem, and they were troubling the churches in Galatia with this claim. We Jews are really the true children of Israel. It was to our ethnic forefather, Abraham, that God's promises were made. It was to his children that our ancestor Moses gave the law. Therefore, if you want anything that approximates being an heir of Abraham, you need to be like us and you need to act like us. If you want to stand in the tradition of Abraham, you need to obey the law that was given to our forefathers through Moses. You are, after all, Gentiles. And you may believe in the Jewish Messiah, but you are not our brothers. You cannot be our true brother in any sense until you obey the law and become circumcised. If you want to be a child of God, if you want to be our brother, then you must become like us by obeying the law. And Paul, throughout the entire book of Galatians, to this point, has been telling his Galatian children in the faith, no, 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 that is not right. And he says, if you want to become an heir of the Abrahamic promise, and Paul goes to great pains to say that is the greatest promise ever made because it's the promise by which God was going to reconcile this broken, rebellious world to himself. The greatest promise ever made that kickstarts all of redemptive history. He says, if you want to be an heir of that promise, you do not have to become Jewish. You do not have to devote yourself to the law. You can become a child of God, a son of God, through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, you're here. Thanks for coming. Maybe some of you, you don't understand yourselves to be Christians. I would love for you to consider in these next 40 minutes or so what you might gain by being adopted into God's family. I know you might think, well, we're all children of God, aren't we? You know, me and and the person next to me and Brother Bear and and Sister Beaver or whatever, we're all part of God's family. And and there's a sense, a very diminished small sense in which that's kind of true. Yes, we are all created by God in his image. But the Bible speaks about inclusion into his family that brings far more benefit than that. Consider that. 
The rest of you, you're, you're here, you understand yourself to be Christians. I would love for you to consider what impact knowledge of your adoption by God, what knowledge, how knowledge of would affect the way that you see your life, the way that you live your life before God. So, so that's, that's the goal. Let's, let's go back to 326 and we'll start there. I'm going to work through 326 through 47 and, and then we're going to spend a, a, a number of minutes thinking about the implications of what Paul says to the Galatians here. Begins in verse four in, in chapter three, verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Sons of God. Now, to say that you're a son of God is equivalent to saying, as we saw last week, you've reached maturity. You don't need a guardian anymore. You've come into your inheritance. You are of age. It, it would be equivalent to saying, hey, you've reached adulthood now. You have, it's time to obtain the promised inheritance. And he uses the language of sonship, the language of being a son. Now, during the Old Testament times, people typically didn't call God their father, but God referred to Israel as his son. Y'all seen Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. What was the phrase that he repeated over and over again to Pharaoh, played by Yul Brynner? Let my people go, right? And that's the claim. So it, we, we, would un, we would understand that God, God said to Moses, you go to Pharaoh and you tell him, let my people go. But that's not actually what God first said that Moses ought to say to Pharaoh. It wasn't let my people go. It was give me back my son. Give me back my son. Exodus 4, 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Later, much later in the history of Israel, one of the prophets spoke these words. When Israel was a child, speaking for God, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son, called my son. So Israel had this place of being known as the sons of God, the son of God. And we talked about last week about how Jesus is the true heir of the Abrahamic promise. Now, Jesus is the true son of God. But now, Paul is announcing to the Galatians, now that Christ has come, the door of the promise of becoming a son of God has swung wide open to include not just those of Israeli or Jewish blood, but also to any Gentile who will believe, who will, who, who will trust in Christ regardless of gender, regardless of social or economic status, regardless of ethnicity the basis for becoming a son of God. And we're going to talk about why I'm pressing on the son language here in a moment. But the basis for becoming a son of God, being in Christ. We read about that last week. The logic works this way. Jesus is the one and only true offspring or seed of Abraham. That was in chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus is the promised son, the serpent crusher, the one whom through whom all the nations will be blessed. And because Jesus is the true son of God, then we can become sons of God 
by being incorporated into Christ. Our sonship is determined by Jesus's sonship. Paul goes on to say in verses 27 and 28, he says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That's how you get in. Then he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Okay, the the issue in the book of Galatians we've been pressing on over and over and over again is who belongs to the family of God? As co-heirs of the promise of Abraham, Jews, Paul said, they are not superior to Gentiles. Those who are free are not more important than slaves, and men, males, are not worth more than women, females. All those who are united to Christ are equal as members of Abraham's family. Paul told them then, if you're in Christ, you are all sons, not in the male sense. When you read this language, don't think male, think what he says in verse 29 in the first part of chapter four, a full heir, a full heir. That's what he's meaning by sonship. Don't think gender, think a full heir of God, a full heir. So, so, so ladies, again, we, we need to hang on to the language of being a son. You are a son of God, N- not because when you came to Christ, you, you became masculine or, 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 or your gender changed or anything like that. I, I will just can't believe I have to say this. It was kind of controversial today. You can't change your gender, right? And, and that doesn't happen when you come to Christ. doesn't happen when you come to Christ. Verse 28 is very clear. You don't lose your gender when you come to Jesus. You do not become a male or something that's neither male nor female. What the son language here does, it, it doesn't communicate gender. It communicates inheritance inheritance. I mean, think back through the Old Testament. Who were the heirs? We have all, so we've been thinking about biblical theology a lot in the Sunday school class. Who, who were the heirs in the Old Testament? It was always the sons. That was the culture. If you were a son, then you were an heir. If you were a daughter, you were married out of the family. Sons would marry and they would bring the women into their wives into the family. It was to the sons that the inheritance came. And there's this, the story in, in the book of Numbers, chapter 27, where the daughters of Zelophad, Zelophad had nothing but daughters, and, and, and the daughters were concerned, if we marry out, we're going to lose our dad's inheritance because the sons are the heirs. And Moses had to give special dispensation to make sure that the inheritance didn't leave the tribe. That's the very special exception that proves the rule In that culture, it was the sons who were the heirs. And that's what Paul's talking about here. If you're a son, then you're an heir, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Paul's not negating all distinctions between male or females or between Jews or Gentiles. Book of Romans 9 through 11, there's a future salvation for ethnic Israel that's promised. But such a promise doesn't contradict the unity that Jews and Gentiles have in Christ. And, and Paul here, he, he actually reminds the Galatians of something the Jews may have forgotten. He, he reminds them in Romans chapter 9, hey, Jewish people, you think you're hot stuff, like, like you're like the true sons? Hey, you were adopted too. <laughs> you were adopted too. You've got nothing on the Gentiles if you think that being adopted is like second tier. Paul's going to make the case it's not. 
Paul says in Romans 9, they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. There's, there's all sorts of language throughout where God shows Israel, why did I choose you? Because I chose you. Why do I love you? <laughs> Paul, God kind of said, well, I'm having a hard time remembering why I love you. No, no. He, he, he would say, I love you because I love you. I, I chose you because I love you, and there's no explanation in you for why I love you. I have adopted you into my family. So, so the Israelites, he has to t- Paul has to remind the, Israel, the Jewish people they were adopted too in Romans, but that does not imply second-rate or second-tier status. And that's, again, one of the reasons why, why I love the family that, that, that I have now and the family that, that I grew up in. I'm really grateful for what my parents did. What this tells us here is that the church should not be marked by classes or cliques. Racism's not allowed. It runs contrary to the very essence of the gospel itself. In Christ, all, all who believe are adopted into the family. All have equal access to redemption. There is no inherent advantage in being of one ethnicity or another. Now, Paul does say something about slavery here, so I I think I I, I should mention just a quick word about slavery. There are some in the culture who are very critical of the Bible's teachings on slavery. Some even go so far as to claim that the Bible endorses slavery. There is no explicit endorsement of slavery in the Bible. There is none. Some believe that because Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors do not forbid slavery and require some sort of revolt against Rome and the Roman practice, that their silence is an implicit endorsement of slavery. But I think that argument's ridiculous. The first century church was an absolutely disempowered entity politically and socially. They had no clout. They had no wherewithal. They had no standing in the culture whatsoever. They were a small part of what was understood to be a Jewish sect in a backwater country that was just an irritant to Rome. What would Paul say? So therefore, do what you can to abolish slavery. They wouldn't even know what to do. What would have been the point of that? It also must be said that the slave system of the Greco-Roman world was not based on skin pigmentation, had more in common with indentured servitude than the race-based chattel slavery of the pre-Civil War America. I'm not arguing that it was like great, but I'm arguing it's not the same. Don't, Don't read language of slavery in the New Testament, especially the imagery of us being slaves to God, and think, oh, race-based chattel slavery, that's evil and that's wrong. Race-based chattel slavery is an egregious evil. Being a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ is an amazing blessing. Instead, what Paul and the biblical authors did was they totally undermined the basis for slavery, and they did it with two doctrines. Doctrines of the doctrine of Imago Dei, that all human beings are created in the image of God, and also the doctrine of redemption in the church, that all, regardless of ethnicity, are co-heirs with Jesus, part of the family of God. 
And it was those doctrines of Imago Dei and the doctrines of equality in Christ that Paul is expounding right now that gave the abolitionists in Western society the theological foundation to eliminate the Western slave trade. A word about men and women as well here. The significance of Paul's statement here is breathtaking. Because, and, and here's a historical fact, is what has happened since then. And I know this is not what you'll hear out in the culture, but this is fact. Wherever Christianity has taken root around the world, the status of women in society and culture has dramatically risen. That's our history. And it's, pre- it's precisely because of the two doctrines that I just mentioned, Imago Dei and equality in Christ. Man as male and female, created in the image of God, and Paul's teachings here in the book of Galatians that all, regardless of gender, are afforded equal access to redemption, and regardless of gender, are made full heirs with Christ. And it makes perfect sense that because both men and women are created in the image of God, that both men and women should be made equal heirs with Abraham. Gender does not grant one greater dignity or a greater salvation. Gender is designed by God, and it does not disappear when one comes to Christ. What salvation does is enable a flourishing into what God has designed, free from the prejudices and the brokenness that sin always brings. And so what's to characterize the church? Our church is that all believers love one another, regardless of social class, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender. The solution to the world's problems related to race and class and gender is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then living out the implications of that gospel. So Paul says in verse 29, if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That's what being a son is, an heir. Who are Abraham's true sons? Well, Paul's already clarified that, as I said. The only genuine son of Abraham is Christ himself. Therefore, the only way one can legitimately be called the offspring, plural, of Abraham is not by obeying the law, getting circumcised, being religious. It's by belonging to Christ. The true and only heirs of Abraham are those who belong to Jesus Christ by faith. And that's, that's the gospel. If you would repent of your sins, confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that, Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. And what does salvation bring with it? It brings with it adoption. More on that in a moment. If you have not done that, now is the time. Now is the time. I don't even care if you like, like totally ignore me for the rest of the sermon just, and just go to the Lord and say, I want to be part of your family. Okay? You can always listen to the tape of this later, right? The main point of the following verses that we're going to read now, going forward in chapter 4, is that believers in Jesus Christ are now sons, full heirs with Jesus because they have been adopted by God. And the proof of this is the giving of the Spirit who came through faith, not through works of the law. Believers in Jesus Christ, regardless of gender, social class, ethnicity, they're all sons and heirs of the promise made to Abraham. So what we have here is Paul's going to give a little illustration in verses 1 and 2. He's going to apply that illustration in 3 through through 5, and then he's going to think through the implications of it. So that's what we'll do. Verse 1, Paul begins with an illustration, Galatians 4. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave 
though he is the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Now you might think there's probably a lot of difference between a son and a slave, but not in the way that he's thinking of here about coming into your inheritance. You're still under the under parentage, if you will. You're still you you have no autonomy. You have no standing. You're not. You haven't come into your inheritance yet. The illustration asks us to think about the common practice of receiving an inheritance. And a minor is one who has not yet reached the age to cash in on the inheritance. And it's the father who determines when the son will receive that inheritance. And until that time comes, the son stays under the control of the guardians. Independent rights over the property are effectively no different than that of a servant. That's how it works, Paul said. This is life. You guys know this, right? Well, then he applies that to Christians in verses 3 through 5. He says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul is saying here that for Christians, the period of infancy and and immaturity, that refers to an era of salvation history when the Mosaic law was in force. And according to Paul, the reign of the law has ceased with the coming of Christ. And if you want to realize the inheritance, the growing up, the maturity of the child, well, that's being compared here to the fulfillment of God's promises in redemptive history, to the sending of God's son, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time. At the right time, Christ came. The fulfillment of God's saving promises. God is so designed history and so controls it that his plan for the fullness of time was to unite all things in Christ. That was always the plan. And before Jesus came, before Jesus came, the message of those who were troubling the Gentiles with the requirement to observe the law and circumcision, that would have been right like 40 years earlier or so. If the if if Jewish people would have gone and said, "Hey, if if you want to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you've been reading about this Abrahamic promise. I'm not exactly sure how you're going to get into it, but the minimally you probably should obey the law and get circumcised. That would have actually been pretty good advice. But now that Christ has come, it's it's bogus advice. It's like going to the Federalist Papers to try to understand how in America we're supposed to function. It worked for a little while, but not anymore." We're under new management. Paul says the time of the law is over. The times of ignorance are over. Now is the time of grace and faith. And now that Jesus has come in the fullness of time, things have changed for everybody. If you want to be a son of God, you go through Christ. Before Christ, all humans were either under the law or under the elementary principles of the world. And what those are is like remarkably difficult to define precisely, but it's clear that whatever they are, they ruled the hearts of people in such a way that led to hopelessness and despair. Believers, though, are now adopted as God's children, as his sons, through the cross work of Jesus Christ. And then he begins to sort out the implications in verses 6 and 7. He says, because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. 
And if a son, then an heir through God. That's what sonship is. Those in Christ now have God as their father. The Spirit has been given to us as a seal of our inheritance. And the Spirit cries out for us this relationship, crying to God, Abba, Father, on our behalf. God is our Father. I, I got to go to um, Greece a few years ago to work with uh, refugees. They were Farsi-speaking Persian uh, Iranian refugees, Muslim, almost all of them Muslim. And uh, the experience there was remarkable because I've never had an experience where you just walk into a park and people want to talk to you and they'll just gather around you. Um, I, 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 kept, I, I was always told, like, uh, as a Westerner, you know, you really want to downplay the American thing. You want to downplay the white thing, all that. Um, but the fact that I was an American and I was white and looked different, a whole bunch of people just right there, and they wanted to talk. And we could talk about anything. I didn't know the language, but there was always someone who knew English. That, and and I, I would just, I'd walk into the park and I'd say, do any of you know English? And some person, some person would say, I know English. And they'd say, and, and I would say to them, great, would you be willing to translate for me? They said, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> and so then, and I just start talking to them about Jesus, about the gospel. That doesn't happen in parks in Portland to me very often. And by very often, I mean ever, ever, right? And, and, and I came away with two profound, I don't know that I taught them anything, but I was taught a couple of things by them. And it was this. One is the gospel. It really is good news. It really, really is good news. And two, inevitably, this is where the conversation would go. The fatherhood of God is an enormous blessing. Something that they just could not comprehend. Now, it, it was all mixed up because they understood that to mean that like our biological father or something like that. But, but, but the, it, 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 is, it is weird and troubling, but also tantalizingly attractive that Christians call God father. Use that. Use that. If, if, if they think, wow, that actually sounds really cool, then we probably should think it's cool because we actually live that reality. And, and that's what I want us to think about for the, for the last few minutes here. What I'd like to do now is to think with you what the Christian doctrine of adoption that Paul lays out for us here, what, what is that? What is that? The theologian J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, and if you haven't read it, I would highly commend it. You know, if, if Jesus doesn't return in the next like 500 years, 500 years from now, I'm pretty confident Christians will still be reading Knowing God profitably. I, I, <laughs> I have a hard time saying that anything in my lifetime is a classic, but I think that's a classic. And the best chapter in the book is his chapter on adoption. And so much of what I'm going to tell you here is it comes from that. But he says adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. And I'll explain why he says that here in a moment. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. Christian, do you understand that all of your hope as a Christian, it rests on your adoption? We think of ourselves as followers of Jesus, disciples, believers, Christians, but do you think of yourself as adopted by God? That's my identity. It's perhaps the most neglected 
of all the wonderful Christian aspects of salvation, adoption. We know we're forgiven. We delight in redemption. We can wax eloquently about justification. But do you realize that all of your hopes as a Christian lies in adoption? You see, it's, it's true that our sins have, have been forgiven. And, and that's probably more than we could have asked for. By probably, I mean, it's definitely more than we could have asked for, right? That God would forgive us. That's amazing. But we have received so much more than forgiveness of sins. We've been redeemed and bought. But there's more to the story than simple remission from slavery to sin. For example, in human terms, it's, it's possible, I suppose, to imagine a person being forgiven or justified, declared righteous, without the remotest thought of our being adopted. The fact that, that a judge would pronounce someone not guilty doesn't commit that judge to take the accused into his home and allow him all the privileges of being a child of his. But that's precisely what's happened with us. Adoption emphasizes an element in our relationship with God that is additional to and distinct from forgiveness or redemption or justification. Adoption or sonship, because the Greek word is literally sonship, it's it's really an exclusively in the Bible, a Pauline word, but it dominated the Greco-Roman world. It's not in the Old Testament, adoption. But Paul uses in the New Testament the expression in a number of places. And the idea, the concept is there wherever we read of the fatherhood of God. In the Old Testament, in the family life of the Old Testament, there was no legal provision for adoption because it was, quite frankly, not necessary. That The family structures and the tribal structures were, were so tight that it was virtually unnecessary. Yet the concept of being a son of God is not foreign to the Old Testament. As I said, Adam, in many ways, is considered a son of God. God lavishly provided for him as father, and Adam is made in the image of God. And in the genealogies of the New Testament, Adam is referred to as the son of God. Building on that imagery, as I said earlier, Israel is to be like Adam in having dominion over the earth, and Israel is called God's firstborn son. But Israel failed in their sonship, And they disqualified themselves as heirs. That's the critical point here, sonship and heir. And in their failure, they anticipated, we hoped for, a true son who would exercise dominion over the earth, one who would not fail, one who would be a second Adam, the son of God in Jesus Christ. Now, for Paul's readers, the concept of adoption was all around them in the Greco-Roman world. And no doubt, as as we read Paul here, the concept of uh, the background of Roman law is crucial to understanding what Paul's saying here. In Greco-Roman law, it it was a recognized practice for an adult who wanted an heir, someone to carry on the family name, normally done by well-to-do, childless people, to adopt a male as their son, usually at age. They had proven themselves, sometimes a Greco-Roman person, a, you know, a man usually, uh, would uh, could have children of his own, could have sons of his own, but, but he wasn't too impressed with them, and, and he would adopt someone else to be the heir. That was just part of how Greco-Roman world works. Have you all seen the movie Ben-Hur before? Okay, in, in Ben-Hur, and I'm going to spoil it for you, but I don't care. The movie's been out for like 50 years, right? 
Unless someone right now tell me, you were planning on going home today on Mother's Day and watching Ben-Hur. Okay, no one. Okay, so it's safe. I warned you. Spoiler alert here. Ben-Hur is a Jewish man, a Jewish prince of sorts, who through connivings is sold into slavery, finds himself on a on, on a slave ship in the middle of a, Ro- a Roman naval battle. The, the boat is destroyed. Ben-Hur can swim for, sa- for, for freedom, right? But instead, he rescues a Roman general, saves his life. The Roman general is so impressed with this Jewish man, this slave, that he adopts him and makes him his heir. And then Ben-Hur, the Roman heir, gets to go back to Jerusalem and and get revenge and justice and those sorts of things. That's basically the movie. But that's how it worked. Ben-Hur had proven his worth and was adopted as the true heir of this Roman general. That's the Greco-Roman context. But what Paul is saying is something even more radical. God doesn't adopt us because our record and character show us worthy to carry on his family name. When did Christ die for us? While we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. And the implications of this, they they echo through the New Testament. We learn a lot from Jesus Christ about how to relate to God because Jesus, very strangely, always referred to God as his Father. This was rather unique in, in Jewish teaching at the time to refer to God as Father. But Jesus did that. What can we learn from Jesus? Well, submission to authority. The Father commands. And the model of Jesus, who called God his Father, is to obey. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. There was an affection between Jesus and his Father, John 15, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Fellowship. Jesus fellowshiped with his Father. John 16, behold, the hour is coming, indeed it's come, when you will all scatter each to his own home, and you'll leave me alone. He's saying this to the disciples. But I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus knew his Father was always with him. And Jesus sought to honor his Father then. Father, he said in his great priestly prayer in John 17, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Jesus would have us believe that the entire Christian life could be understood in terms of our adoption to where God is now our Father. Jesus' relation to the Father as Son, it controlled his life, and so it should control ours also. And and this is evident in the Sermon on the Mount. Adoption is the basis of Christian conduct. Jesus says, imitate your Father who is in heaven. He said that we are to glorify our Father. Matthew chapter 5. We are to please our Father. Matthew chapter 6. Adoption is really the basis of Christian prayer. Remember, teach us how to pray. And Jesus was really excited to be able to say, okay, pray this way. And the first words were breathtaking. Pray this way, guys. Our Father who is in heaven. 
That was radical, so radical that even liberal Jesus scholars who would really like to just eviscerate the, the sayings of Jesus of anything divine cannot get rid of that statement. They have no argument. It meets all of the qualifications for this was authentically Jesus' word. Our Father. Adoption is the basis for a life of faith in Matthew 6. He says, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, Jesus says, what you eat or what you'll drink, not about your body, what you put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Not their Father feeds them. Your Father feeds them. And if your Father feeds them, then what do you think he's going to do with you? That's the implication here. Adoption forms the basis of even how the tough things that we go through. He disciplines us as sons, we're told. Hebrews chapter 12. Adoption shows the greatness of God's grace. It's an act of free kindness. God shows us compassion in order to make us sons. And how will he not continue to show us compassion and kindness now that he has made us heirs? And it's the glory of the Christian hope, adoption. We're co-heirs with Jesus, we're told. That's our hope. And it's demonstrated to the Galatians, and it demonstrates us. I'll just say it this way. I, you, and, and, and Amy alluded to this with, with mothers and, and, and how there's broken relationships, and, and it's hard. And, and for some of you, as I'm saying, God is our Father. God is our Father. Isn't that great? And maybe for you, you think, that doesn't sound all that great because my father was lousy. And I... I'm so sorry about that. I don't know what you hear when you read or listen to me say, God is your father and God has adopted you, but I know what it's supposed to mean. And it means this, you are wanted in God's family. You're wanted in God's family. God chose you. God chose you. We, my, I, I, I'm looking at three of my boys back there, full Miles boys, and they don't really look like me. A couple of them look very different from me, right? Um, but they're my sons, right? And, 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 and here's where they have some insight into the gospel that my biological kids maybe don't, because here's the reality. I was stuck with Natalie, Ethan, and Levi, right? We brought them home from the hospital. They, they're, right? But we chose them, right? Julius, Vicente, Marcos, your mom and I chose you. We chose you. You're part of our family. And now I have to buy them ice cream because I mentioned them in the sermon. But that's okay. <laughs> I, I delight to give good gifts to my children, right? All right. Okay. So what does this tell us? Some more. Okay. So God gives us a wonderful picture of the gospel in adoption. We know this. God has a special place in his heart for orphans. Deuteronomy chapter 10, God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Israel. I could multiply this. God has a special place in his heart for the disempowered. That was what was supposed to mark Israel as unique and wonderful, their justice toward those who were ordinarily disempowered, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. This is the heart of God, and he calls us, therefore, to have that same concern. 
He, in, in, the, in the Jewish law, cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner. And, and, and in world law, the laws of all the other nations, like there is no justice due to the sojourner, but in Israel there was. You treated them with dignity and respect. Cursed be anyone who perverts justice to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. All the people that in that world were traditionally absolutely disempowered and treated like garbage. Isn't it interesting that when in the book of Job, you know, Job wants to say something before God and plead his case about his innocence, and he goes to like the trump card in, in Job 31. He goes, man, if I could stand before God, this is what I would tell him. If I've withheld anything that the poor desired or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless have not eaten of it, for from my youth the fatherless grew up with me as with the father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, and then he goes on. So I don't know if you understand what I'm saying here. Job makes his big appeal to how righteous he is and just by how he treats the orphan. I have always fed them. I am blameless, he says. So it's, it's no surprise then that James says, in the New Testament, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's what true religion is. And the world does not share that concern. But we should. Margaret Sanger was the founder of Planned Parenthood. Her commitment to provide abortion was based upon her idea of eugenics, the goal of purifying the human gene pool while ridding the world of less desirable genetics, usually aimed at certain ethnic groups and people with disabilities. Her grandson, Alexander Sanger, has carried on her insane, demonic vision in his book, Beyond Choice, Reproductive Freedom in the 21st Century. And in it, he takes aim at the practice of adoption, which he sees as running contrary to the goals of the grand vision of his grandmother, and Darwinism, Planned Parenthood, the whole abortion culture, he writes this, adoption is counterintuitive from an evolutionary vantage point of both the biological mother and the adoptive parents. Adoption requires a person to devote time and resources to raising a child that is not genetically related. Adoption puts the future of a child in the control of a stranger. And he's critical of that. It's easier for a woman to have an abortion because evolution and biology conspire to thwart adoption. Evolution has programmed women to be nurturers of the children they bear. That is why adoption as the solution to the abortion problem is a cruel hoax. And that is straight from the pit of hell. Full stop. It runs contrary to the gospel. Adoption. I'm... <laughs> Is it any wonder that in our current culture, in our current culture, adoption, which is, strikes at the very essence of the gospel, is under attack by those who would do away with it? Paul understood something that the world does not. There's not one person in this world that is not or was not crushingly fatherless. We either have been or still are fatherless. We were all orphans every single one of us, and those who don't know Christ still are. That's why those words of Jesus are so sweet when he says to his disciples, and he's telling them he's going to go away, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. This is the heart of God. So let me put a bug in your ear. 
that you get. I love this church because of this. You get this all the time here. Embrace your sonship, your adoption in Christ by taking and embracing the heart of God and his concern for the fellowship. Or, or, I'm sorry, for, for the fatherless. Um, so come back next week for an update on FAST, Foster and Adoption Support Team from Laura. She'll talk to us about that. Listen, I'm running out of time, so I won't say more. I'll let her do it. Be a church that models the gospel through your concern for the fatherless. So you can tell the world that you understand the gospel. You know, you know something the world does not. You can give the world a picture of the gospel by taking the fatherless into your home or supporting those who do. We've been adopted by God. How can we say no? What will it cost us? Well, lots, frankly. Treasure and time, but all worth it. I want my, ch- my children to grow up with the same picture of the gospel that I grew up with. That my boys will know they are Miles boys. Miles boys. And when they see that, I think they'll be able to understand what their Father in Heaven has given to them. They're not, there's no second-rate, second-class, second-tier sons of the kingdom. Adoption does not bring with it. Your adoption in the family of God does not bring with it anything second-rate. You're a full heir with Jesus, and there is nothing second-tier about that. And I think that's why Jesus was so excited about this. Immediately after he rose from the dead and is talking to Mary, what are the words that he gives to Mary? Jesus said to her, Don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The author of Hebrews concludes this sermon best. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he... Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Of course. Uh, Father, uh, you, you're a good, good Father. We, I, I, even, I, I say the first word of this prayer, and it bears such enormous significance. Father, you are our Father, and what you have done to adopt us into your family is stunning and breathtaking. May we love that and live into that. And I pray for those who don't know you as Father that that would be attractive work in their hearts, we pray, that they could come and join your family. Bless us, we pray, to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.